1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's BYTE.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Welcome to the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SUP China. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. Chinese stocks fell to four-year lows last week following a sharp decline in the U.S. But China's markets have been slumping since the beginning of the year, mainly on concerns about the country's economic outlook, making them some of the world's worst performers. The Shanghai Composite Index is down nearly 20% from the start of the year. But investors were encouraged by trade data, released Friday, that showed better-than-expected growth in exports. More on that in our interview section.
1: Two years after becoming one of the world's 10 most valuable public companies, social networking giant Tencent has passed a less flattering milestone by crashing out of the same elite club. Tencent's departure from the global top 10 came as the company posted a 10th consecutive day of share price declines amid the broader market sell-off that saw China's two main stock markets plunge by around 6%. That sell-off alone has seen Tencent's shares fall by nearly 20%, wiping out about $80 billion in market value. Those declines pushed Tencent's market cap down to about $320 billion, making it the world's 11th most valuable company. It was replaced at the number 10 position by U.S. energy giant ExxonMobil and pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson at number 9. With Tencent's departure, the only remaining Chinese company in the global top 10 was internet rival Alibaba, which was number 8 with a market value of $380 billion. US. The top spots are dominated by U.S. tech giants Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google's Alphabet.
2: Speaking of rankings, Alibaba founder Jack Ma, who plans to become a teacher after retiring next year, has reclaimed the title of richest man in China with a fortune of $39 billion, according to the latest Hurun Rich List. Ma's return to the top spot, a position he last held in 2014, is thanks in large part to the sharp increase in valuation of Alibaba-affiliated online payment giant Ant Financial, which he founded. He knocked into second place last year's leader, Xu Yuan, chairman of property giant Evergrande. Tencent's Pony Ma is number three on the list, and the fourth and fifth spots are held by leaders of two of the nation's biggest real estate giants. Perhaps the most remarkable rise in this year's list is that of Li Jun, the CEO and founder of smartphone maker Xiaomi, who shot up from 22nd to 10th place. His wealth increased dramatically thanks to Xiaomi's highly successful IPO on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange.
1: The value of Chinese outbound mergers and acquisitions slumped in the first half of the year as countries that included the U.S., Germany and Australia imposed restrictions on deals and China tightened controls on overseas spending, according to a new report. The depreciation of the yuan and trade war concerns also took their toll, the Bain & Company report said. The value of China's outbound deals plunged 60% in the first half of 2017. In the Asia-Pacific region, Chinese companies accounted for only 14% of the M&A deals in terms of value, compared with 40% in the 2015-17 period. The report noted that privately owned companies have become much more active overseas and are showing faster growth than state-owned enterprises. One reason is that Chinese SOEs face more scrutiny than private firms. But Chinese companies in general are becoming smarter in their overseas ambitions, learning from past mistakes, and taking a more rigorous approach to deal-making, the report said. They are also taking a more sophisticated approach to how they integrate and manage their acquisitions, increasingly opting for lighter control and influence on day-to-day operations and focusing more on strategy and governance.
2: The U.S. Treasury Department has found that China isn't manipulating the yuan as the Trump administration prepares to issue a closely watched report on foreign currencies, sources told Bloomberg. If Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin accepts the report, it would avert an escalation of the U.S.-China trade war, but Mnuchin could dispute the findings. President Trump has pressured Mnuchin to declare China a currency manipulator, but Treasury staff haven't found grounds to do so, according to the Bloomberg sources.
1: China's dinner tables will be getting meatier over the next decade, which will have a significant impact on the international agriculture trade, according to an Outlook report published by the OECD and the UN. By 2026, an average Chinese citizen is expected to consume 120 pounds of meat per year, up 10% from today. Pork will remain Chinese people's favorite meat in the years to come, making up about 60% of all meat consumption, followed by poultry, beef and veal, and mutton and lamb, according to the report. The country's insatiable appetite for pork has made it heavily dependent on imports of soybeans, a key feed for China's swine. The oilseed, also used to make cooking oil and products like tofu and soy sauce, has found itself on the front line of an escalating trade dispute between the world's two largest economies as it is one of the few areas where the U.S. runs a trade surplus. Roughly 60% of America's soybean exports go to China.
2: Hong Kong is planning a total ban on electronic cigarettes. If passed, the ban would place the city alongside over a dozen countries that have outlawed e-cigarettes, which typically allow users to inhale nicotine and flavorings heated by battery-powered elements without the burning that traditional cigarettes require. Initially targeted at people trying to give up smoking, e-cigarettes have become increasingly popular, especially among younger users. And while widely perceived as a healthier alternative to traditional cigarettes, e-cigarettes have been blamed for doubling users' risk for heart attack. Rates of smoking are relatively low in Hong Kong at 10% for people over the age of 15, down from over 20% in the 1980s, according to figures from the Hong Kong government. In comparison, 62% of men and nearly 4% of women on the Chinese mainland were either current or former smokers, according to a national survey.
1: Veteran regulator Yao Gong, a former vice chairman of China's securities watchdog, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison for taking bribes and insider trading. From 2006 to 2015, Yao took advantage of his positions at the China Securities Regulatory Commission to gain benefits from companies involved in mergers and to help companies avoid penalties, according to a court verdict. In return, he received bribes worth nearly 10 million US dollars paid through his relatives. He is also involved in insider trading in 2007 when he headed the CSRC department that reviews applications for IPOs. Yao is the latest official from the regulator's IPO department to be jailed for corruption. Last month, the Beijing court rejected an appeal by Li Jilin against her bribery conviction. She now faces life in prison, the harshest punishment for graft ever handed to an official at the CSRC.
2: Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week to some of Tyson Global's reporters and editors for a closer look at some of the news of the week. First up is Fran Wong, economics reporter for TsaiSeen Global. Fran, just last week, the IMF had its big annual meeting and TsaiSeen Global was there and managed to get a face-to-face interview with the head of the People's Bank of China, China's central bank, Yi Gang. What is the takeaway from that conversation?
3: What Yi Gang said was that China is confident that it can achieve its annual growth target this year, which was set around 6.5%. And what he also said is that the central bank's monetary policy making now is fully shifted to domestic economy, which in other words, I took it as a central bank statement that it will focus on supporting domestic growth while it makes monetary policy. Everybody knows that the central bank has been kind of uh, sending a signal of easing monetary policy stance by cutting the amount of cash banks are required to keep in reserves. And people all agree that this uh, shift of policy stance came as the trade dispute with the US has intensified and hasn't had any sign of easing in the short term. And also because of domestic issues such as uh, a slowing credit growth amid government campaign to control debt
2: risks. About the time you guys spoke to Yigong, uh, China's new trade numbers came in for September, and things looked a, a fair bit rosier for China's trade than many people had anticipated. Uh, is the trade war not having its intended effect uh, from Washington, or is it maybe not as as bad as it turned out from Beijing's perspective?
3: Well, um, yeah, export growth rebounded strongly and beats a lot of economists' expectations. But uh, it's widely expected that the strong performance could be unsustainable when the impact of the tariffs, including the one imposed by the US in late September, start to kick in in the fourth quarter. The strong export growth actually in September actually uh, was attributed to a number of reasons, including front-loading by exporters to shun higher tariffs imposed by the U.S.
2: So is what we've seen then just a temporary respite, and uh, we're going to see an export slowdown then soon?
3: Yeah, analysts uh, are widely expecting export growth to cool in the coming months. And actually a sign that the government has been expecting this change as well. It has taken a preemptive move this week by announcing that uh, it will raise tax reimbursement rates for exporters from next month. To help them a uh, word of impact of, of the higher tariffs.
2: Uh, so so in short, we saw China appearing to weather the trade war storm, but we're also seeing China put in place some policies that indicate uh, Beijing expects things to get much worse then, right? Yes. Well, great. Thanks for talking to us, Fran, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Next up is Doug Young, Managing Editor at Cision Global. Uh, Doug, you've got a, an auto industry story today focusing on a company called Brilliance Auto and its partnership with BMW. Uh, so, Doug,
0: what's the story here? And
2: maybe perhaps you can start with the backstory.
0: The, the big backstory is that China you know, is now the world's biggest car market. And all the foreign car makers, you know, the GMs, Volkswagen, Audi, Peugeot, they've all been salivating at China for years because it is such a big market. And China sort of knew that, and and they didn't want to give the whole market to foreign companies. So from very early days, they said the only way foreign car companies can come in here is to do a joint venture. They put pretty high import taxes, so they couldn't really import that many cars. And they said, you've got to produce locally, but we're only going to let you produce locally in a joint venture. And on top of that, you could not own more than 50% of that joint venture. So basically they're saying, you got to work with our local companies, which don't really know much, have very little to bring to the table, but that's the price you pay for being in China. And and of course, the hope was that these foreign companies would somehow rub off on the local Chinese partners and local Chinese partners would become the next BMW and so forth. Uh, That's the backstory. And then the newer story on that is that that China's just raised those limits. Uh, After years of complaints by the foreign companies and pressure from foreign governments, China's just said that they're going to scrap this condition about joint ventures. And eventually, for the short term, they're going to raise the minimum that foreign companies can own. So now foreign companies can own majority stakes in these ventures, which means they have a lot more control. So with all that backstory in mind, what's happened is BMW, basically their joint venture partner was this company called China Brilliance Automotive, and they have just become the first company to essentially re-sign their deal. And BMW is going to now get 75% in their joint venture, and China Brilliance is going to go down to 25% from a previous 50-50. So what does this mean? This, this essentially means that when you have a certain stake in a joint venture, you can put all, you know, it's either a representative stake or the entire joint venture output into your own balance sheet, your own earnings sheet, your financial results. So basically, BMW is going to be able to put a lot more of this venture's profits and revenue and so forth into their own financial results. And conversely, Brilliance China or China Brilliance is going to be able to put a lot less into their results because of their lower ownership of the joint venture. So bottom line is that, you know, Brilliance China is, is sort of getting screwed. They're just going to have a lot less money and they really don't have much say over the, the matter.
2: So Brilliance not looking so brilliant now, huh? Uh, how did the market react to this announcement? Uh, which, was, which was when?
0: Well, right. So this was announced last week and investors were not very happy about it for China Brilliance. Um, and you know, rightly so, analysts were putting out notes you know, sharply downgrading the company and saying, you know, well, it's going to kill like, the big chunk of their, their business because it comes from this joint venture. Uh, so if they're such a small minority stakeholder. And then I think there's also the sentiment that maybe they'll buy them out altogether at some point. So Brilliance's stock was down around thirty percent. Third of the value got wiped out of the stock uh, the day after they announced this deal. But you know eh, everyone's gonna be saying, Gee, this brilliance company doesn't really have a lot outside of the the joint venture. What are they gonna do now? And there's gonna be a lot of pressure on them to maybe try to develop their own brands or maybe find some new partners or maybe get into some new businesses or, or something because they're going to lose this BMW business pretty soon.
2: This is the first test case really then for, for China opening up the automotive sector to majority ownership in JVs uh, by foreign partners. What does this tell us so far? Is this going to scare some players away? And I guess secondly, did this unfold this way because of BMW's sheer size, its
0: relative weight, uh, in what was, you know, a very asymmetric partnership? Yeah, I mean, that's a a, a good question. And, and everyone, I, I actually looked at some of the other stocks to see if the other Chinese automakers that had big joint venture partners were were plunging too, you know, because everybody was going to be worried that they would be next. And surprisingly, they weren't. So, you know, what you're saying could be true. Maybe Brilliance was just not a very good partner. And and so people said BMW can easily go it alone. Whereas if you look at some of the other partners, maybe they are bringing a little more to the table. Uh, one of the big ones is called SAIC, which is a big Shanghai-based car company. They're a big joint venture partner with uh, General Motors and, and Volkswagen. And their stock seemed to be doing just fine. And, you know, they're a big company. So perhaps... I imagine GM and, and Volkswagen both. All I think all the foreign companies will probably want to get a majority stake, but maybe they'll only look for like 51 percent versus, you know, trying to go up to 75. And I think a lot of people did read that 75 is meaning once China allows 100 percent ownership, you know, these guys will probably kick brilliance out completely. It could be end up shaking out on a company-by-company company basis. Maybe the stronger Chinese companies will will do well. And some of the stronger Chinese companies do have their own legitimate own products. Uh, SAIC you know, does have its own brand, whereas I think Brilliance probably didn't really have much of anything.
2: Well, thanks, Doug. And we will check back in with you next week and see who has crashed. Ah, okay. Thanks, Kaiser. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Tyson Seneca Business Brief is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Tyson Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Tyson Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Check out our new China Econ Talk podcast as well as our flagship current affairs show, Seneca. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at SubChina.com. Take care.